So the last few weeks, we've been doing a series called Reasons for Believing. And the whole aim of this series is to equip you to give answers when you're asked and you know people. I had a most bizarre discussion in a squash changing room the other day with an engineer who just brought up the subject of God. And it was wonderful that I was able to, I mean, God's spirit is working with people that you work with, Tommy. We just have to be ready and be prepared to give an answer. So this is the purpose of this series. In the last few weeks, I just want to briefly recap a couple of thoughts. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus of Nazareth clearly claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now it's one thing claiming that. You could be an idiot, a lunatic and claim that. You could be a flat out liar and claim that. But what we saw through the evidence that we systematically worked through that Jesus Christ was not a lunatic, he was not a liar, he was the Lord. And he just didn't just prove that, uh, say that, he proved it. First of all, he claimed it by direct statements. Remember, they are the I am statements. I am. And we looked at the litany of I am statements indicating that he was God because he was talking to the Jews and they recognized that. And then what about his actions? He, he claimed to forgive sin. He said, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then we, he assumed the authority of God by saying, it has been said, but I say. And he gave direct commands. He assumed the authority of God. And then something quite odd about this guy, Jesus. He did something that's only acceptable for God. He accepted worship. Do you know that, Tina? He said it was okay to worship him. Now, that was really weird for the Jews. That really did their head in. And then he proved he was God by fulfilling, we looked at this a few weeks ago. By fulfilling hundreds of messianic prophecies that were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, something up to 600 years beforehand, very clearly in detail. We looked at those. And then he also lived a sinless life. Both friend and foe didn't dispute that. Now, it's one thing for your friend, but have you ever noticed when you get close to a person, you start to see some of their foibles? Huh? They look great from a distance, right? But when you get close, you start to see, oh, well, actually, oh. no. The friends confirmed he lived a sinless life. So did his foes. And we looked at everybody from Pilate to Judas. You know, I find no fault in this man. Surely I've betrayed innocent blood. We looked at that. And then we also saw something very unusual, very unique about Jesus, that he prophesied ahead of time, predicted that he was going to die and he was going to rise again three days later. And he did this at the top of his lungs in front of all of the Jews and the Jewish high council. And they got somewhat irritated by that. So irritated that they said, this man must die. Very clear. Now these facts were established beyond reasonable doubt for those of you that were with us. And therefore we concluded that not only did Jesus claim to be God, he proved it. And we concluded that section by saying Jesus was God. You, are, we, are we there now? We're all on the same platform, just recap. Now, let's look at the next push you're going to find at work, Paul. 
you're going to find that people are going to say, well, hang on. Is there any truth in other religious books? How about the Quran? How about the Vedas? Is, is, is there truth in any other religious books? Um, or is the Bible the only true religious book? You're going to feel the pressure of that one. Now, if there is truth in other religious books, would that even pose a problem for us as Christians? Would it? I'd rather you think about that now and be forearmed of that before you get thrust into the lion's den. But it is a very valid question and one that we mustn't shy away from and we must answer. So, before we get straight into that, I want you to consider a few things this morning. Firstly, consider these points. Anything that Jesus, who is God, teaches must be true. Because we've already established that God is morally perfect. A morally perfect being who cannot lie, right? God cannot lie. And Jesus both claimed and proved to be God. Therefore, whatever Jesus teaches must be true since he is God. And Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. We're going to see that shortly. Therefore, clearly the Bible is the word of God. So, there's an implication. Don't miss this. What's the implication? The implication is anything in any other religious book cannot be true if it contradicts the Bible. Because contradictory truth claims cannot be true. In other words, because Jesus is God and because he taught the Bible is the word of God, if something contradicts the Bible, it's wrong. That's a simple logic. So what did Jesus actually teach about the Bible? And by the way, when we talk about the Bible and Jesus, what are we actually talking about when we talk about the Bible or the Scriptures? The what? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. We're going to get to that in a second. So what did Jesus teach about the Old Testament? Very important. Because some people today have got this crazy thinking, oh, the Old Testament's not relevant anymore. That's rubbish. Let's take a look at what the Master had to say about it. So Jesus referred to the Old Testament with words like this. Scripture. With words like the Word of God. Talking about the Old Testament. Words like the Law and the Prophets. Talking about the Old Testament. And he also used very often the words, it is written. So he's referring back to written documents. Not some folklore. It is written. Things formalize themselves in a document. So, to the Jews, these terms were very clear references to the Old Testament. So what did Jesus actually say about this thing we call the Old Testament? For example, is it God's word? Well, yes, he did. Jesus taught that the Old Testament was the word of God in seven specific ways, just so we're clear on that. Firstly, Jesus quoted the Old Testament as having divine authority. He quoted it. Many times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, prefacing it with words like, what? It is written. He refers to the authority of the written document. Matthew 4.4 4 is a classic. 
and he's quoting there, mental Bible line, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember that? And when he was quoting that, he was quoting something from Deuteronomy 8.3. You may want to go back and look at that later on to see Jesus knew the Old Testament so well, he oft quoted it. Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, each time he said, it is written, what is he doing there? He's validating the Old Testament. And the authority that it had is pointing to it. And we can clearly see that because he uses it to rebuke the devil. He actually uses it in that passage in Matthew 4 to rebuke the devil. He uses the authority of the word of God. He also uses the authority of the word of God to exhort the Jewish leaders to poke him with it. He doesn't debate opinion. He says it is written to them. And then also to establish his own authority as being sent from God. So my point here is this, quite simple. Jesus confirmed the Old Testament as God's authoritative word. Secondly, Jesus said this, speaking of the Old Testament, the scriptures are unbreakable. That's pretty tough. Boy, I wish you had things like that today that didn't break. Eh? They're unbreakable. He said the scriptures or the Old Testament could not be broken or set aside. You cannot ignore them. That word is valid for Christians today. John 10.35 says that. He taught that God's word cannot change or fail. You know why that is? The reason why our plans and our documents change is we haven't got full knowledge. We're not perfect. We don't know everything perfectly. God does. He never makes a mistake. So then, oh, forgot that, rubs it out and change. Don't need to do that for God. As the psalmist said, your word, O Lord, is eternal. And it stands firm in the heavens. Great scripture. Third, Jesus said, the Bible or the Old Testament back then is imperishable. This is the scriptures are literally indestructible. And that's because God's plan never changes. He's, oh, I forgot that. Got to make a quick modification here. <laughs> He's not caught out like that. Matthew 5, 8, 18 says this. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Some of you may remember a fairly in-depth study we did in 40 Days in the Word on this exact scripture. Will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So that's saying that the Old Testament scriptures, all of the Old Testament, by the way, looks forward to the coming of the Savior, to the one who would come and fulfill it. Every prophecy in Scripture, everything prophesied in the Old Testament will, uh, will have been fulfilled. That's what it's saying. Nothing's going to change. Nothing will pass. No promise or prophecy in the law will remain unfulfilled. Everything, as God said, will be accomplished. That's exactly what that's getting at. Next, Jesus said the Old Testament is true. It's true. Now, Jesus was correcting some of the Jewish leaders, which he did oft. And they were debating, well, what happens when we're resurrected? In particular, the question was, is the marriage in heaven? That was a controversial question for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, notice the way Jesus 
what he said. Basically, he said flat out this. It's not very politically correct. He says, you're wrong. How often do you hear people say that today? Jesus said they were wrong if they believed in marriage after death. In fact, in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, Jesus is quoted here. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. Basically saying, you dunk offs. Read the scriptures. He's pointing back to them. Or the power of God. Two errors there. Notice, I just happen to be highlighting one of them because we're talking about the scriptures. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then John 17, 17. Oh, by the way, he was saying the Old Testament was not wrong. You are wrong. They are wrong. The Old Testament was true. That's the standard of truth. And in John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And again in Psalm 119, All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. No modification necessary. Which is fantastic. Then Jesus said also, The Old Testament accounts are historically reliable. Important point. Don't give ground on this. Liberals you will find today, some people who even call themselves Christian, will give ground on this. And they'll try and discount parts of the Old Testament. So I'm warning you about that ahead of time. Jesus though, who is the person who we take as authoritative, treated these historical events as fact. Historically, so the the Bible is historically reliable. For example, when it comes to creation, we, we looked at that in week two about how the world and the whole universe began. And it talks about in the beginning was the word and there was nothing before that. But here, specifically talking to the, a group of Pharisees one day, he said this, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, when he said that, he was affirming that humankind was a separate act of creative work. He's in also therefore saying, we did not evolve by natural forces. God had his hand in it. Adam and Eve were real historical people, the first of their kind. By the way, something else to challenge your wonderful friends with, like mine too, is how can inanimate things live and feel joy and have consciousness? Because if all there was was matter, which doesn't live, it's non-living, how do you explain consciousness? Could you help me with that? Jesus also confirmed there was a flood in Noah's time. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Notice this carefully. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For those of you who are not Christians yet, or are unfamiliar with this passage, it's talking about the return of Christ. And after that happens, the Bible talks about the judgment. That's what it's talking about clearly there. 
Jesus referred to Noah as a historical fact. There are many things we could have drilled on this uh, uh, that the Bible is scientifically accurate. Jesus affirmed that. Now, if you want an expert in this field, you should look up Dr. John Lennox from Oxford University. He is the guru of gurus on this area. I'm just skating across the top today. And um, some people insist that we're a result of millions of years of gradual evolution and deny any possibility that we were created. But remember, we've already mentioned that Jesus clearly showed haven't you read, he replied again, haven't you read what? The, the, uh, the Jerusalem Post? No, no. Haven't you read the scriptures? That at the beginning, the creator made them. For this reason, notice also, it talks to morality in our day. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, get some independence, grow up, stop hanging off mum and dad, and be united to his wife. Hmm, fancy that. And the two shall become one flesh. And last time I checked, that could only happen when you have Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Right? Let's move on. How about something a bit more? I mean, there's tons of this stuff. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of verses I could have pulled. Let me just pull one. Thousands of years ago, the Bible alone declared that the earth hangs freely and suspended in space. Now, why is that unique? Well, because everybody else in the world was saying, no, the earth sits on the back of an elephant, a tortoise, or on the back of Atlas. But no, the scriptures show right here. God stretches out the heavens over empty space and hangs the earth upon... What? Nothing. The Bible talks about the earth was round, whilst everybody else thought it was flat. We could have gone on for a whole message on that alone. But the scriptures... Confirmed. Nothing in science has ever contradicted. Oh, when we looked at that in one of our messages. Jesus also said the Bible is, the, is ultimately supreme. Well, this is important because the Jewish leaders had put their interpretations. Ever heard that? Well, that's your interpretation. Be careful. Be careful. The Jewish leaders have put their interpretations above God's word itself. And Jesus rebuked them. He says this in Matthew 5, uh, 15, 3. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition or your preferences, which tend to become traditions? Huh? See, that's how it worked. God started out with Moses and how many commandments? Ten. Ten points. But by the time Jesus had come along, those jolly Pharisees and Jewish leaders have multiplied that ten into 618 commands. That's why I said, you're giving people commands that's breaking their backs. That was all their preference. Oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. Should be like this. Should not be like that. That's all people's preference. God keeps things simple. Religion complicates. Mark 7 says this, you nullify the word of God. What? How? By your tradition. Be careful. Your preferences and preconceived ideas of how things should be done do not nullify the word of God. So, thus you nullify the word of God by the traditions that you have been handed down. He said, and this is two separate things. Don't confuse them in your mind. So Jesus showed here clearly that the Bible is the final authority. The supreme word on everything that it teaches. It's the authority on what we should believe. 
and how we should behave like, here's a good one, keep your vows. That's direct from God. Keep your vows. Don't look in a woman with lust. That's never changed. Don't do that. Because one day you and I will have to give an account for every thought, every word, every deed, and every action. The word of God is the authority. What else did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said clearly in terms of the Old Testament, he said that he came to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. He said that the Old Testament spoke of him. And it is the truth. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. John 5.39 says this. You, speaking to the Jews, diligently study. Isn't that interesting? The scriptures. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Now, let, let me just say this. We need to be careful. Some people make an idol out of the Bible and they worship the Bible. Hold, hold, hold. Now be careful what I'm saying here. Jesus is a person, a real live person that you can have a relationship. The scriptures are like my wife's letters to me. They reflect her thinking. The scriptures reflect his thinking on all things, because it never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But don't get, you, you should very much study the Bible, but don't forget to have a relationship with him. Does that make sense? Imagine if my wife just wrote me letters. Oh. And I, it, I was away, we were separated for some reason, I'm overseas, and I'd get these letters, and I'd, I, I, look, I, I, let me tell you, I'd be reading every one, thinking about the nuances of what she meant. I could just imagine. Does that make sense? Same with your children, when you get them from overseas. You it's a reflection of who they are. But it's not them. Does that make sense? So imagine that all of a sudden, like my daughter's in Uganda, she writes me these letters, I think, oh my, my daughter, she writes me these letters, oh nice. And then I'm so enamoured by them, she shows up, and I'm still reading the letters and ignore her. Something's wrong, right? It's both and, remember that. We get our thinking clear on what the Lord wants through his word. So, These are the scriptures, he says. Referring to who and what? The Old Testament. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet, he said, you refuse to come to me to have life. Can you see what he's getting at here? You've got your head so far in the book, you're missing me. And you've added all this other stuff on, which is laying layer upon layer of unnecessary burden. Come to me and have life. On several occasions, Jesus explained that upon that his up and coming death and resurrection would be a fulfillment of Scripture. So he took the twelve aside and he told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, or mock him, they'll insult him and spit on him. Imagine that. Come on, we run over that. Imagine that's you. Flog him, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and kill him. And on the third day I'll rise again. So he treated prophetic sections of the Old Testament as guarantees they will be fulfilled. Well, of course they will be. Because to God, he's outside of time, and he can see the beginning from the end. So he knows exactly what's going to happen there. 
So according to Jesus, the Old Testament is definitely from God. It can be trusted. It won't fail or break. It's historically accurate. And many of his prophecies were fulfilled in his first coming. There are many that you might want to look at that talk about his second coming. Therefore, since Jesus is God, we can trust what he says. And although Jesus, notice this point, never hesitated to call out the faults of the Jewish pharisaical religious leaders, calling them such words as hypocrites, that's got to hurt publicly, blind guides and those who hurt the poor, notice this next point, he never, ever challenged them or charged them with corrupting their scriptures. They're accurate. He affirmed the scriptures by doing that, their reliability. So, what about some other evidence confirming the Old Testament? Is there other evidence that confirms the Old Testament? I want to quickly look at four lines that support its trustworthiness. We've looked at the manuscript support for the New Testament, as you saw if you were with us for that session. Now, evidence for the Old Testament is equally well preserved. First of all, Ancient documents demonstrate that the Old Testament has been copied accurately. How do we know? How so? Well, firstly, the Jewish scribes who copied their scriptures were exceedingly careful. They counted every single word and every letter and every line. They even would locate a middle letter in the centre of each line and compare it to the manuscript to ensure everything they were reproducing lined up perfectly. And if an error was found, the page would be destroyed. And you can see that. The people that did that were a special group of scribes, like the Jareds uh, Jareds of this church, scribes who don't miss a beat. Actually, they had numbers that converted all to numbers and they could add it up so they knew. It's like those in the supermarket business all remember math, a check digit. So you make sure that not a single thing was missing, not a single letter. So the, the Jewish scribes, they were the Essenes, did that. Secondly, in 1947, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in all humankind was discovered. And that was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I've shown you pictures of those before. Today we haven't got time to delve into that. But the, the, they are evidence that the Old Testament copy, um, copies have been accurately preserved. See, one of the longest books in the Old Testament is a book called Isaiah. And we found there an exact copy with all 66 chapters, word for word, and that was a thousand years earlier. So what you do, you've got all these copies now, let's say thousands of them, and you find one a thousand years earlier, what are you going to do? You grab that copy, you, you scan it word by word and see how it matches up to see if there's any, been any corruption. Does that make sense? Any mistakes, word for word. No other document stands a candle to that type of accuracy. Third one, Benjamin Kennicott who was a Hebrew expert, a Jew, did an extensive study, you can read about this, to determine the accuracy of the Old Testament. So you can use this. Somebody pokes you in the eye with this, you can stick this one back. He studied 581 manuscripts involving 280 million letters. That's an extensive study, wouldn't you say? 
His conclusion, the Old Testament has been reliably copied more than 99.98% of the time. The rare, what they've called, the secular people have called mistakes, dealt with pronunciation or spelling. Not one affected the text's meaning. Important to know that. So don't let anybody bully you with that. Not one. Quote the study. Let them go read. Second, archaeology has proved the Old Testament's historical reliability. Here are some of the things that archaeologists have uncovered. Remember, the book to go to on this is my friend Dr. Joseph Holland's Biblical Archaeology. He's the guy that's in charge of the dig at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's written a whole encyclopedia on it, Dr. Joseph Holland. You'll find him. But I showed you, for those who came to the Israeli night, you saw Abraham's tomb and Rachel's tomb. We can show you where they are. I had photographs of those today in the modern city of Hebron, where Christians and Muslims visit today. I showed you the walls of Jericho, which you can go and see today, and prod and poke, you can see them there, where they've been uncovered in the exact spot the Bible describes along with their charred homes and a thick layer of ash. It's about a metre deep. You can read about that also in Dr. Holden's book. The tunnel, the tunnel of Hezekiah, which I love to walk through. Any of you who've been to Israel, you cannot miss walking through the tunnel that Hezekiah built. You can do that to this day. I've been through it twice. Those of you who saw the Israel thing, saw King David's palace. Again, you can see all these things. You can poke and touch them. Here's my point. No archaeological find has ever disproved any Old Testament truth claim. Here's an interesting one. Not exactly a Christian source to quote from, but I, don't, I like to use secular sources. Jeffrey Scheller says this. And it's under, the actual article is entitled Extraordinary Sites from Archaeology and History from the US and News and World Report. And it's, it says this. In extraordinary ways, modern archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and New Testaments, corroborating key portions of the stories of Israel's patriarchs, the Exodus, the Davidic monarchy, and the life and times of Jesus. Now here is a secular newspaper at the top of its lungs with an enormous circulation, which would dwarf anything in New Zealand, claiming that at the top of the lungs. Here's other evidence <clears throat> confirming the Old Testament. This is objective. And you can see this. I want to come back to the fulfilled prophecies because you can objectively um, measure this. Show that it's true. Following the fall of Jerusalem in 650 BC, Israel was taken captive. Imagine this. All of Howick rounded up and marched lockstep into enemy territory. Actually, all the way to Babylon. It was a horrible time for the Jews, very humiliating and causing great despair. Your life's over. And you think about your kids' lives, your grandkids' lives. Yet Jeremiah prophesied that their captivity would last only 70 years. And this is, this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and I'll bring you back to this place. Very specific, 70 years. Jeremiah 29. Ezra then builds on this and records that when the 70 years are over, says this, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
to make a proclamation throughout his realm and he also put it in writing. Verse 2. This is what Cyrus, the king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and in Judah. Isaiah adds to this prophecy saying, this is bizarre, this is way before that that even came, saying that the man, by a specific name, his name will be Cyrus, would eventually appear on the scene. And when he shows up on the scene, he would allow the Jews to return to their former homeland and rebuild the temple. And here it is, Cyrus will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Isaiah 44, 28. Prophecies like this and many others were fulfilled in exacting detail. The name of rulers hundreds and hundreds of years before they came on the scene. How's that work? Letting whole people and doing specific tasks. More recently, in some of your lifetime sitting here, we've seen prophecies fulfilled that Israel will become an independent state again. And that happened in 1948. Almost 3,000 years ago, God promised that he would bring them back to their land. And here it is in Deuteronomy uh, 30. Even if you've been banished to the most distant lands under the heavens, those of you who studied history know this as the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews to every continent. They never had a place of their own, ever. It was taken from them. Even after you've been banished to the most distant lands under heaven, From there, the Lord God will gather you back and bring you back. He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your fathers. Any idea now why the Jews will not give up their land? (laughs) This is ours. It's guaranteed to us by God. Period. And you will take possession of it. So that's why I'm not too keen to let it go. There's some other evidence confirming the Old Testament. Let me just say it as clear as this. Men would never have written the Old Testament this way. Ever. Why? Because it talks very rarely about what happened. Noah got drunk. You're not going to sort of, you're heroes of faith. You're not going to sort of, <clears throat> let's just forget about that part. You would never include that. Abraham didn't trust God. He lied. And then he also shacked up with his servant girl with permission of his wife to sort of help God out because he's getting a bit impatient. So it is sung by his wife's servants. That's now today why we have the Jews and the Arabs. You can trace all that back. How about old great men of faith, Mr. Moses, who's coming to the film soon. That guy murdered a guy. I understand why he did it, but not exactly something to brag at the top of your lungs that everybody in the world knows about. You wouldn't include that. It's sort of get lost in the history. How about David. A man after God's own heart. Standing on his rooftop. Whoa, what's that? Hmm. Now that woman shouldn't have been doing what she's doing. That's a whole other sermon. And then he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. You're going to miss that, right? How about the Jews, Israel? They were freed from Egypt, witnessed enormous miracles of God, but they quickly turned to idols. Money, security, we'll take care of our own security, we'll take care of this. And they do it again and again throughout history. Their kings and their own leaders worship pagan gods. And they even, this is hard to hear, but they even 
offered their little children to these pagan gods, burning them alive to show their devotion. That's the story, and that's a whole other story, as to why God got after that particular group of people who did that. And he said, no more. No more. That's not going to happen again. Prophets like Jonah. Big sissy, he ran away. God said, do this. He took a boat exactly the opposite direction. By the way, that's a, a good listen to all of us. Oh, well, the circumstances lined up. Be careful about circumstances lining up. God said, go this way. Go talk to Nineveh. He goes, no way, Jose. They are mean beggars. So he hops on the ship, which happened to have a captain, which happened to be going the opposite direction and happened to take him. Oh, great. All lined up, right? Do you know what the biggest revival is in the whole of the Old Testament? When finally Jonah got his act together and did what God said, not what circumstances said. Nineveh. That is the biggest revival in the Old Testament. So it's another pretty picture, if you look at it from that point of view. But it's accurate. It's an accurate portrait of real people. Question. Why would anybody record or want to record a history of such moral and spiritual failure? Why would anybody do that unless it was true? There's no advantage. None. So the Old Testament can be trusted as a reliable, accurate, historical record that's been faithfully preserved. Now, coming to the New Testament, which had not been written in that day. So on the night he was betrayed, he spoke to his disciples about what would happen when he was gone, promising that his Holy Spirit would come and would help them personally in four specific ways which has bearing. The result of these four promises would be the New Testament. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit would teach them all things. John 14, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Boy, I wish I could do with that sometime. Bring things to my remembrance. Jesus promised that his Spirit will be their teacher and he would teach them everything they needed to know and nothing will be held. The Holy Spirit is God God in the person of the Holy Spirit would personally teach those disciples. Now, what Jesus taught about the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. Jesus said that not only would his Spirit teach them, but he would guide them into all truth. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, John 16, he will guide you into all truth. Nothing will be overlooked. Now, what eventually became the New Testament would include everything the disciples needed to know and to record. And the Spirit of God would direct them and reveal it to them. Three, Jesus promised the disciples would be reminded of his Spirit, of everything he had heard and seen when he was with them, and it will be brought back to their memory. But the counsel of the Holy Spirit and the Father will send in my name will teach all things and remind. That's the thing I want you to focus on. Remind you of everything that I've said. And he doesn't forget anything. And then also the Holy Spirit would come. Finally, Jesus told his disciples the Spirit will reveal future events to them. What is yet to come. 
Peter and John would record specific prophetic events that God would one day fulfill, and they did so under the Spirit's guidance. In John 16, 13, the Bible says, He will tell you what is yet to come. How does he know? Because he's God. He knows everything outside of time. So the New Testament, on the last night, Jesus was alone with the disciples before he was crucified. He's laying the foundation for the New Testament. He told them that they would be the ones to record his words and the events of his life. They would be the ones. Nobody else, they would be. given, And they will be given the ability to accurately recall what they've seen and heard by the Spirit's power. So the Holy Spirit is God. And the New Testament would be written and compiled under God's guidance. God himself would guide them. Now, scholars all agree that the New Testament was written in the first century when the apostles and the eyewitnesses are still alive. And it is the only record coming from the time of the apostles that contain what they taught. Now, we haven't got time to get into this today, but anything of value eventually ends up with forgeries. So don't ever be put off and discombobulated by, oh, I've heard I found a new gospel. We've been, there's plenty of good resources I can point you to that show you this and this alone has tested, passed the test of time. Now, since Jesus promised that he'd lead them to all truth and bring back to remembrance what he taught, it follows their writings are the fulfillment of his promises. The Bible is finished. It is complete. Anything else is man's additions which are flawed. So we only use the Bible in this church. We need no additional revelation from God. We have the story there. So, in conclusion of this part, Jesus confirmed the reliability of the Old Testament. And he promised the New Testament clearly on the night before he was betrayed. Now remember, because Jesus is God, the following statements are true. Whatever Jesus or God teaches is true. Jesus taught the Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible is the word of God. Now, last question. Can't other religious books also contain the truth? This is a very important question since many people today believe there's truth in all religions. To answer it, we have to go back to the very first session we did in this series. The very first point, actually. We saw in those series that contradictory truth claims cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. And we've seen that the Bible is true. So then to the extent that any other book contradicts the Bible, it is false. There are four specific ways which other religious books contradict the Bible. Specifically, what other religions teach about God, about Jesus, about his resurrection, and very importantly, about how we are saved. You get that muddled, you're in trouble. So, what do other religions teach about God? Well, pantheism just says, well, remember, just quick recap, God is this impersonal force flowing through everything, including the trees and the grass and all this stuff. Polytheism says there are many different gods. That's the Hinduism, you know. How many bazillion gods, millions and millions of them in Hinduism. Buddhism, on the other hand, denies the existence of one personal knowable God. Completely denies that. 
only and exclusively the Bible says there is one knowable personal God that exists and he's a theistic God. So since the Bible is true, pantheism, polytheism and Buddhism are wrong about the nature of God because they fundamentally contradict the Bible. So I'm going to ask you all a question. Do all religions teach the same thing? Pardon? Are you sure? So never buy on that one. They fundamentally contradict. So when somebody tries to palm that one off you, don't even buy into that. Second, what do other religions teach about Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is uniquely and eternally God. Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses flatly deny this. Pantheists and polytheists believe he was a man who all one day thought, gee, I think I'm God. That's what they think. They think. And and they also therefore say, hey, one day, you can come to realise that you are God too. New age movements in this area. That's what they think. Now, according to them, Jesus is not unique and has not always been God. Mormonism, you may have seen some of those guys running around their bicycles, also teach that Jesus was a man who became God. And they believe that devout moments, Mormons, also believe if you're wearing the right underwear and if you're other bits and pieces, you can become God after you die. I'm just telling you, I have the Book of Mormon, I've read it. Crazy thinking. Jehovah's Witnesses believe there's those guys that are, let me tell you, we could learn a thing or two about sharing our faith from those guys. They are motivated and they don't put, they don't count their lives as anything. They just get after it. If you want to learn how to witness to more uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, write something in your communication card, I'll send you some stuff. They believe that Jesus was Michael the Archangel, a creative being. Okay, so point again. These beliefs all contradict the Bible. So if the Bible is true, and it is, these contradictory statements, truth claims, are false. Third, what do other religions teach about Jesus? Well, as we saw before, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam all deny that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a problem. Flat-out contradiction. Pantheism, polytheism, and atheists deny any resurrection, And the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus did not bodily rise from the grave. Rather, they allege that only his spirit raised and the disciples saw a recreated body. That's weird. By denying physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, these religions and their documents clearly contradict the Bible, which is shown to be true. So, How do other religions teach that we're to saved as we wrap this up? Very important. And I've just summarized some of it there. This chart shows how unique the claims of Christianity are. These truths separate Christianity from the rest of the pack. Christianity teaches that all people are sinners. And that the penalty for sin is separation from God. It's cut off from the source of all spiritual life. And if you take a flower and you cut it off from its source of life, what's it going to do? Die. 
And it also teaches that all good works in the world cannot change this. No good work. That's called the grace of God. None of us, not even the best of us, can undo the consequences of sin. But God has done something about this. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He died in our place, shedding his precious blood and giving his life as a sacrifice for us, standing in our stead. He could do this because he's God. Now sins can be forgiven because of what he accomplished. So on the cross, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Whilst we're here on earth, we are working to be delivered from the power of sin by his spirit. And eventually in heaven, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. So we're saved from that penalty of sin when we accept Jesus as our saviour, not by good works. We are saved by acknowledging that we are sinners and we need salvation that only he can provide. You can't buy salvation and you can't work your way to salvation. Because the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin or the consequence of sin is death or separation from God. But, that's the bad news, second half of the verse. The good news is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and our Saviour. So no human being could ever deserve or earn something like this. The price was Christ's death on the cross. All we have to do, if you have a gift, think about Christmas, roll forward a few weeks, I don't want to get too distracted there. But if you were given a gift by somebody very precious to you, and they gave it to you, and it was there for the offering, you'd have to do two things. Number one, you'd have to take it from them and say thank you. And then to be any use to you, you have to unwrap the present. The gift's on offer. You just have to accept God's present to you. It's free and open the package. Now, if you compare that in your own time to the other religions, every other one in the world, blanket statement without fear. Every other religion says good works are necessary to earn your salvation. Now, let me don't get this wrong. Good works are the fruit of and should always be the fruit of your salvation, not the root. There's a big difference. Never confuse it. Because I've heard some Christians who are really weird, who say things like, oh, well, I don't have to do any good works now. I'm saved by grace. I said, there's something wrong with your salvation. There's something very wrong with your theology. Good works flow from an overwhelming thankfulness. You don't earn. And there's a whole other situation about rewards, which we haven't got time to go into now. Hindus work hard to be good in order to be reincarnated into a better level of life next time around. Buddhists try to be moral people in the hopes of being absorbed into nirvana. Muslims pray five times a day, fast like the Dickens when they're not cheating, and go on pilgrimages in the hope of gain, hope, 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 hope of gaining paradise. Mormons hope they're being good enough to reach highest, uh, the highest level in heaven. Jehovah's Witness, well, it's tough luck, baby, because there's only 144,000 that are going to get in there. That's like, well, they work like dogs. That's why they work. It is a Christ, all the other religions are summarized in one word. What is it? Do. Christianity is summarized in one word. Done. Do, done. Do, done. 
Christianity clearly teaches we cannot earn your salvation. What does that look like? Let me say it another way, which will probably disturb some of your thinking. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do that will make you love him any less. That's because his love for you doesn't depend upon your performance. It's his love. You know that. You're a mum. You're a dad. When your children screw up, and they do, mind do. Am I disappointed that they didn't do the right thing? Absolutely I am. But they're still my flesh and blood. Any faith that tries to teach you you must earn the right to go to heaven contradicts the Bible. Therefore, other religions are wrong about how and why people will get to heaven. It's not hard to see that. The texts of other religions contradict those claims. The Vedas and the Pali Canon and Buddhism and the, and the Quran and the Book of Mormon read those and the Watchtower literature. They all contradict the Bible. And on what points they do, they are incorrect. Now, other religions and teachings may have beliefs that don't contradict the Bible. Because some of them have stolen from ours. In fact, for the most part, most religions try to do unto others what they have to do unto you. That's because God has given all people a moral conscience. Moral truth found anywhere is evidence of a moral lawmaker. So the bottom line is this. The opposite of true is false. The Bible is true. Therefore, any claim from any source that contradicts the Bible is false. So what have we learned? We've looked at three ways to respond to the question of whether truth can be found in other religions. First, Jesus is God and God cannot lie. So uh, whatever Jesus teaches is true. And Jesus taught that the Bible is the word of God. So therefore, it's the word of God. We reviewed the law of non-contradiction and noted that because the Bible is the word of God, nothing that contradicts it can be true. Third, there can be truth in other faiths, for God has left evidence of who he is in people's consciences all around the world. Oh, we all sin, but we all know what's wrong too. And over the last seven weeks, we've looked long and hard at the evidence that shows Christianity is true. It is not popular or politically correct today to say that other religious books are wrong, but it is true that they are wrong. Contradictory truth claims cannot both be true, no matter who wants them to be. And that is a very, very sobering thought. Because there are people that I know, and people that you know, and love, who are lost. Because without God, they cannot spend eternity in heaven with them. Some are unwilling to accept this. And many persist in the false claim that somehow all good people with sincere beliefs will make it to heaven. Next week, we're going to look at the final objection. And it goes like this, and you're going to hear this at your work. Can good, sincere people go to heaven without making the choice to accept Jesus to be their saviour? Is he, Jesus Christ, the only way to God? And I hope and pray next week you'll come with bright eyes, bushy tails, lots of sharp pencils and pens, 
And be prepared to answer that question at the end of the message with gentleness and respect. Father, I thank you that your word is true. That Jesus, you have made a way for us to come to know you. That's not dependent upon our performance or lack of it. But in faith. Accepting what you did on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our disobedience, our rebellion, for us going our own ways. Today, maybe you're in this audience and you've been considering the claims of Christ. Maybe you want to know more about this way of salvation, which is clearly unique. If that's you today, I would encourage you to mark on your communication card, I'd like to know more about giving my heart to Jesus. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you so much for your eternal word which is light and salt in this world. Amen.